Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we discuss a theme that changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis. The film world, or at least the small but vocal part of it known as film Twitter, was shaken to its very core last month when Netflix announced that they planned to produce and distribute The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's long gestating and often delayed film about Frank Sheeran, the high-ranking member of the Teamsters Union who's, who was responsible for decades of mob-related corruption and murder and confessed just before his death to murdering his boss and friend Jimmy Hoffa. In addition to sparking arguments between those who were dismayed that a Scorsese film might debut on a streaming service instead of being given a proper theatrical release, and those who were just happy that the film might finally see the light of day at all, the news also represented the latest round in an ongoing competition between upstart streaming services and traditional film studios, as well as between the streaming services themselves, as companies like Netflix and Amazon vie to produce the most buzzworthy original films to attract new subscribers, a contest that has the potential to shape the entire future of film distribution. Joining me this week to unpack the significance of The Irishman, as well as Netflix and Amazon's other recent moves, is the host of the Anglophils and Bloodsucking Feminists podcast, Podcasts, co-editor of the pop culture website Biblio Days, and a feature writer for Screen Rant, Kaylee Donaldson. Hi, Kaylee. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, so yeah, like I said, you write for Screen Rant, and uh, I wanted you to be on this particular episode, which uh, I would just like to point out. I didn't intend to record on St. Patrick's Day weekend, despite being about a film called The Irishman. That was just a, a weird coincidence because you wrote a article about. The Irishman and Netflix's uh, acquisition. And uh, first off, uh, why is this being treated as such a significant thing? I think it's just such a massive step forward for Netflix in a way that their current movie, original movie business model hasn't accommodated. Mm. They're leaps and bounds ahead of Amazon in terms of television. Um, and they've really begun to put a foothold into the films that they're making. But so far, they've been either pretty small indie fairs or Adam Sandler films. So there's yes. not been a whole lot there's not been a whole lot there that people have been wildly excited for. There have been a couple, but there nothing compared to what Amazon did last year for Manchester by the Sea and such. And after Scorsese's most recent film flopped as big as it did, there was fears that the Irishman was never going to get made mm. because it was already said it was going to have a budget of about 100 million i believe it's now gone up to about 150 million dollars yikes which even scorsese nowadays probably isn't going to get the money for despite having an exclusive contract with paramount for about two more movies i believe mm. so so netflix not only getting this film but putting the money down they are they had to buy the rights away from the european distributors as well so that was 50 million straight down for them to basically pour money into this and to do it with such a huge name, one of the, the great auteurs of our time, someone who is so decidedly cinematic, even in his television work, is such a massive shift. And you compare that to what Amazon is doing, which is incredible work, but it's very small, very indie. You know, Kenneth Lonergan is not going to need a $150 million budget. <laughs> I'd be interested to see what he'd do with it, but it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So if they've got Scorsese, then, you know, what's next? You could pretty much say the game is wide open now if this is successful and I don't see a reason why this won't work for them unless their business model completely fails which it might because we don't actually know Netflix's business model yeah I mean the the rationale behind their kind of investing hundreds of often like tens of millions of dollars into original tv series like House of Cards the first season of which I think cost around the same price as you know the original price tag for 
the Irishman is the idea that okay people will get addicted to these and then they'll subscribe and then you can keep making more seasons and keep people interested and you'll make money from the subscriptions over a long period of time and with film the uh, calculations seem to be a little different because it's not about investing a huge amount of money and then for kind of a long uh, a kind of a long tail I guess of people hearing buzz about this show and checking it out as each new season comes out it really is like the film comes out there'll be probably a limited bit of interest when it initially comes out and maybe if it gets nominated for oscars or whatever but uh, it's hard to see them getting the same number of subscriptions even though i'm sure there are lots of film fans who would be happy to pay for netflix for a month say in order to watch scorsese's new movie but that's what's really interesting to me about this is you know, the whole Netflix model in and of itself really changed television in a massive way. I think people mm. forget that. House of Cards was only, you know, four years ago and it completely up upshifted the way that television was done and in terms of its marketing and such. You know, House of Cards is a really successful show that also won a lot of awards and you look at other stuff that they did, like Orange is the New Black, and the most recent mm. example I think would be Stranger Things or The Crown as well. The Crown is kind of the epitome of using a very classical model to em embrace this you know, future that they've made. Because The Crown is basically, it's it's a PBS drama, but they've paid $100 million to make it. So it mm. is a very old model that they've just put more money into. But we don't entirely know how much it's paying off. Because if you look at stuff like, you know, Orange is the New Black was wildly successful, but do you remember Marco Polo? Yeah, no, I don't think many people... <laughs> That's one of those ones that people probably checked out a few episodes of and then never really kind of picked up again. And I think it also had a spin-off series that absolutely no one talked about even when it came out. Oh, which, I missed that one. <laughs> that yeah. totally bypassed me. Yeah, so it's, yeah, that a lot of their series, I think the, the problem with a lot of Netflix's stuff in general is they put out so much original stuff. Like there, there is pretty much an original stand-up special or an original movie or an original series debuting every week now that it's very, very rare that any of those things really break out. That's why Stranger Things was interesting because that was, you know, an example of a show that had not, it wasn't particularly well heralded in terms of, of the effort, the marketing effort that Netflix put into their other shows, but really captured the popular imagination in a huge way. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, even Netflix can't necessarily make hype turn into mm. reality you know they put so much money not just into marco polo but the get down yes and yeah. you know actually i've only seen the pilot of the get down which i really liked but it mm. is an example of something that you know there's clearly an audience for it but it's not a hundred million plus dollars audience mm -hmm. mm. um and you know great true hype is organic you need the people to come to it which is one of the reasons i think St stranger things was so successful well one it's tapping into a very specific kind of nostalgia mm. but it was something that it's easy to latch on to. But it's also something that you could probably have seen on any number of networks. I don't know if Netflix have necessarily carved out a specifically Netflix style for themselves. You know, you can watch a certain show and think that's a HBO show mm. or that's a, a, a Star show. I think they've now carved out pretty big space for themselves with stuff like Outlander. I don't think Netflix are at that yet, but what they're really doing is just, it's spaghetti at a wall. They're just seeing what sticks. And I think the get down is in some respects, it feels like a, a precursor to the Irishman in a strange way in that they are going after really established talent. And, and House of Cards was like this as well because of the David Fincher connection, whereby they go after people who have an idea that they're clearly trying to make in some medium or another, you know, that they want to either make it on 
cable TV or they want to make a movie, but they just can't get the funding together because the other networks are too scared or they they don't see the potential profit in these things or seeing money back. Whereas Netflix, for the moment, have such deep coffers that they are willing, like like you say, to throw spaghetti at a wall, to throw money at everyone in the hope that something will capture the popular imagination and get people to say oh my God, you have to watch this. You don't have Netflix. Well, you know, sign up. You know, we need, we, you need to see this and that's the only place where you can see it. Oh yeah, I think that's one of the things that you've seen a lot of with their television and particularly, the, you know, they know their audience to a certain extent. I mean, the reason that Fuller House happened is because nostalgia sells. Mm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the reason Stranger Things happened as well. But you can even look at stuff like some of their upcoming movies. I mean, the Death Note movie was originally Fox or Sony, I believe, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to put the money into it. And then Netflix picked it up. Why? Because they've got the anime on their streaming service and it's one of their most popular things. So there's an audience for that. Or you look at something like, um, well, Carrie Fukunaga's got a show coming out, which is also reaching this very specific kind of indie audience. Will that make a lot of money? Probably not, but it's that's adding to a prestige in a way that the, the nostalgia stuff isn't necessarily doing. And mm. Scorsese is kind of the, I think he's being perceived as the peak of that. And yet they've also successfully achieved a lot of prestige just from something that no one else is really doing, which is their documentary line. Yes, that I think uh, when I was looking at the list of original Netflix movies that I've actually seen, I realised that I don't think I've actually seen any of their original dramatic features in or narrative features in their entireties. I've watched a bit of that one with Ricky Gervais and Eric Banner that came out last year, Special Correspondence, which was, yeah, Matt Matt forced me to watch that because it was his least favourite film of the year and I made it about 20 minutes in and I said, I don't need to see any more to know that you're right and thinking it's the worst movie of the year. Uh, But everything else, the only ones that I've sat down and watched have been things like uh, Winter on Fire and 13th, which uh, 13th in particular I think is, is one of the very few Netflix products other than... Bojack Horseman that I I insisted that I have to had to watch the first day it was available because I thought this is going to be something really special. Um, but yeah, net their feature and short documentaries seem to be where they're having the most success in the traditional sense of getting attention from awards bodies. Yeah, and their documentary line is really good. I mean. It is also just, it's a niche that no one else is really doing. Documentaries tend to reach, you know, pretty small audiences, but there is an interest Mm. for it. It's just that they don't tend to get wide screenings. Like a lot of, you know, middle America are probably not going to get a screening of, a wide screening of 13th. So I think Mm. in that aspect, you know, Ava DuVernay was really smart. But even stuff like, you know, What Happened to Miss Simone is a wonderful piece of work. Um, Winter on Fire is really wonderful. They've got the, um, there's a Fox Capture documentary I really like. They've clearly crafted out this really fascinating part where you're actually allowing people to see the, these works the way they never would have been seen before so mm. in that aspect they're certainly ahead of the game over most studios and also over amazon but they're still kind of playing catch up with a lot of their other areas and i think that's because they tried it with their they tried to use their tried and tested model of you know let's just put it on the streaming site and see what happens but you need more of a build than that. That's why I think they've started putting things in the festivals. They had a, a couple features at Sundance this year, for example, like Discovery, mm. which got respectable reviews, but you know it certainly gave it a boost in a way that just sticking it on the site probably wouldn't. Uh, and also at Sundance, they made a couple of very high pro, a couple of very high profile purchases as well. Like they bought, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. The Macon Blair film and. Mudbound, the D. Reese movie, which were both movies that 
got a huge amount of acclaim, well, Mudbound in particular got a huge amount of acclaim and they really seem to be trying to find things that will get them attention when it comes to the awards conversation because that is something as well. If you're talking about the kind of people they're maybe aiming for, you know, they're looking for people who may be a bit more middle class and affluent, people who'd be willing to shell out for a Netflix uh, a Netflix subscription over a long period of time getting a movie that gets nominated for best picture and serious awards contention is a very easy way to do that um and in terms of documentaries as well i do feel as if netflix has in kind of an accidental way become something of a game changer for the entire documentary industry because it feels like until streaming became popular that documentary was a very niche thing and it still is is fairly niche but the ready access to thousands and thousands of documentaries means that people who before wouldn't have gone to see a documentary in the cinema will go on their Netflix queue and look for something and think oh that sounds interesting and they'll kind of watch it tacitly and I know from going to the documentary film festival in Sheffield um, several years uh, on the trot you could see that uh, awareness of Netflix as a platform creeping in a lot more you know people would talk about where movies were going to be shown uh, and there was a real palpable sense of excitement over the, the the potential of Netflix because the potential audience for it is is huge. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that they ended up getting Mudbound. They paid twelve and a half million dollars for it, which made it the the highest purchase at Sundance this year. The Big Sick was purchased by Amazon, but they paid twelve million for it, I believe. And mm. the Big Sick is yeah. a very Amazon kind of film. Uh, but I believe one of the reasons that they ended up getting Mudbound was because Netflix ensured them that they would push it really hard for awards contention, not just a film, but for Deeries. Because if mm. she were to become, if she were to get nominated for Best Director, she'd become the first woman of colour to ever be nominated for Best Director. Mm. So clearly, that's a case of the makers of that film looking at who's got the, you know, the tools at hand that they need. And in this case, obviously, it's money. But clearly, they're also aiming for some level of visibility. And I think yes. that's a case of, you know, the 13th is a really good example there. How many other people would have gone to see the documentary about, you know, the 13th Amendment and the prison system of America if it hadn't come up on their screens, you know, as the sort of spotlight film? Hmm. So in that aspect, I'm really interested to see how Mudbound does because it got the best reviews out of Sundance easily. It was the it was the birth of a nation, but you know, with <laughs> justified hype and without all the icky stuff around it. Yes. Um, so I think they're going to be a safer purchase here. You know, but Netflix have the potential to make history here, and clearly they know that they've got the awareness of that, and they're working towards it. But they they're still playing catch up in this aspect to Amazon, because if you look at what Amazon did last year, mm. uh, the sheer amount of films they released, actually, I'm surprised. But what then you realize. But they made a really smart but quite old school decision here. They distributed through old school distributors, you know. Hmm. So, for example, the Love and Friendship, which was my favorite movie of last year, was distributed by Roadside, or The Handmaiden was with Magnolia, or Manchester by the Sea was also with Roadside, or I Am Not Your Negro as well. So they they're not acting so much as power players for their platform. This is really them just kind of going the the Miramax route almost. Hmm. Or yeah, A24 or, to give a more kind of current model. I think that they're being more successful than Remax right now. Yeah, yeah. You, you, we we were talking about that beforehand, that A24 or Annapurna pitches the Megan Ellison company are both trying the same sort of thing where they go after established, certainly Annapurna does, they go after established directors who maybe don't have the best commercial track record, people like Paul Thomas Anderson, 
great filmmaker, one of the best, but his movies they don't they don't make bank particularly, but they're the sort of people that you want to make movies with because you you're probably gonna get something incredible out of that. Um and so they go to them and say, Okay, we'll give you the money to make a film and then we'll we'll work with other people to get it out there and you end up with things like Love and Friendship, which was wonderful. The Neon Demon, which I don't care for, but you know, it's certainly a, a distinctive piece of work. Um, the Handmaiden, Patterson, Manchester by the Sea, obviously, which is kind of their, their biggest success in in a in many ways. Uh, they have really put themselves ahead of Netflix in considering also they've been in the original film game only about as long as Netflix because Netflix started with Beasts of No Nation. That was their kind of first high profile one around about the same time that Chirac came out. But they really have made inroads that Netflix seemingly are up till now have been unable to do. Yeah, definitely. And you've actually seen the sort of rise of these really... Uh, scrappy young upstart distributors and studios over the past couple of years, A24, Annapurna, mm. Amazon and Netflix all kind of came round at the same time in terms of that market. Mm-hmm. It's really only about four or five years old, which makes it all the more fascinating that they've managed to make such an impact in a short amount of time. So that's what I think, you know, Amazon sort of saw what Netflix was doing, but decided that it was probably going to be a more creative and financially beneficial decision for them to take a smaller route. And you know they they went with you know serious aplomb. They went after you know Todd Salons, Kenneth Lonergan, um, who else? Sorry, I'm just remembering who directed The Handmaiden again. Uh, uh, Park Chan-wook. Park Chan, that's it. I knew that. Uh, Jim Jarmusch as well. And then if you look at what they've coming up this year, they've got James Gray, they've got Lynn Ramsey, they've got um, Todd Haynes, they've got mm. Terry Gilliam and the Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which. You know, I, I'll i believe it when I see it. And by that, I'll believe it when I've left the screening after the end credits. Until then, it has not happened. Yeah, I, I've taken to thinking of, of them backing the man who killed Don Quixote as Jeff Bezos deciding to take on God himself. Like, <laughs> pretty much that's that's who he's competing against to somehow make that movie happen. Uh, the challenge yeah. he's wanted for many years now. <laughs> Um, but that that one, I think, also brings up an interesting, again, in terms of the audience that Netflix and Amazon are both chasing, they are chasing, they do seem to be trying to go after discerning viewers or people who are cinephiles, because, you know, that's the only reason I can think why Netflix would also agree to fund the restoration and quote unquote completion of The Other Side of the Wind, the long, uh, incomplete Orson Welles movie, which have various people including Peter Bogdanovich have tried to put together for pretty much 40 years at this point and Netflix have stepped in and there is no I'm sure it's probably not a huge financial outlay to get that film made but you know also it seems to be a case of them say trying to appeal to tastemakers and people who they want to take them seriously you know your your high profile film bloggers and film websites by saying hey we're trying to give you this incredible rare thing that you never ever thought you'd be able to see uh and hoping that that generates interest in them as serious purveyors of of worthy and uh, kind of prestigious prestigious cinema oh yeah i mean that is such a fascinating purchase because that is who knows how much that cost them who knows how much that's going to continue to cost them mm. as they make it um, and it's not going to get the audience of even, you know, the Adam Sandler movies, which is, <laughs> you know, we all sort of laughed at that. I mean, the numbers that they gave over that was, oh, it's our most watched thing on the platform. Maybe it was, you know, we really have no way of proving that. But that made us sound solid business 
decision mm -hmm. that was kind of justifiable. This is pure vanity, but the best kind, because it's the kind that makes film Twitter very happy, which is always mm -hmm. nice. And I wonder how much this will go to having you know the skeptics of streaming platforms embrace the model you know you still have people like you know quentin tarantino talking about netflix like it's the the death of cinema mm. will this go towards fixing that i don't know but it'll be fascinating to see how they do especially now you know between that and then basically throwing 150 million dollars at scorsese to make this really epic decade spanning you know drama about gangsters that will involve a a huge amount of de-aging technology i would have to <laughs> yeah i mean from what i understand as well that was another reason that he ended up going with the netflix deal was that they would give him the money and the clout to use that technology and mm. actually kind of perfect it because they're, they're not quite there yet they're, they're kind of there mm -hmm. so you know if you know netflix and scorsese can't get the money for that then no one will but yeah. that's also an interesting niche that they are filling that even Amazon, I don't think, are. Because the mid-budget film has been killed off almost mm. completely. Um, we're not, we're in the the franchise age. The tentpole of the each studio is, let's find our, you know, our not even our franchise anymore. It's an expanded universe. It's not enough to have mm. your your trilogy of movies. You've got to have prequels and sequels and midquels and everything has to tie together in this big melting pot of epic. <laughs> which is frankly exhausting to be a part of. Yes. I say that as someone who, you know, kind of got bored of superhero movies around Age of Ultron. So operating in this field is just very strange, particularly as, as a film writer. Because mm -hmm. you look at how all the other studios are working. You know, DC and Warner Brothers are doing something. Uh, it's some sort of tax scam, I think. Um, <laughs> it's basically Bialystok and Bloom. It's completely bonkers uh but then you look at something like you know universal are trying to revive the monster series and turn mm. that into like the avengers which i have so many opinions on as someone who loves those movies <laughs> or even you know sony are now trying to get back in the game with um the venom movie they're you know, they still have the spider-man rights yeah that You've was got... quite an announcement <laughs> that i don't think anyone was expecting yeah i think everyone just watched logan and we're like you know what we can still do this <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you also have stuff like, um, you know, there's this planned Robin Hood franchise, apparently. Yeah, that's been on the story. That's been on the, the, the table for years of trying to have, I guess, a Robin Hood movie that brings together the Merry Men and then individual movies about all of them, which um, sounds like the most colossal waste of money imaginable like even the first one i can't imagine is going to do too well but i'm not sure what the audience for a friar tuck movie is <laughs> it is so ridiculous i mean i'm the person who's going to pay opening weekend to see the guy ritchie king arthur movie and i still won't go see that i'm, I'm so. very excited for the king arthur movie it looks insane but yeah that's another... right doesn't it look fun <laughs> yeah i just like uh, I've said this to like numerous people, but I just every time in the trailer it goes raised on the streets. It's like <laughs> uh, that's not something I've ever really thought about the King Arthur <laughs> mythos. I guess it kind of applies, but it's it's an interesting way of, of framing it. And I do like that it, it does seem this is completely off topic now, obviously, but it does seem like a an interesting melding of Guy Ritchie's two gears of the the kind of early gangster comedy kind of Cockney geezer stuff and big budget franchise stuff uh and it's for whatever whatever anyone else can say about it it's the most distinctive blockbuster i think that's coming out this year nothing else quite looks like it oh 
yeah. I mean, I'm still bitter that I'm not going to get my Man from Uncle sequel. Mm. So this is pretty much the best option that I have. Yeah. Shout out to Scott uh, Scout Tafoya, the critic, who mm-hmm. is the only other professional critic I know who is completely wild about Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, but you are, we are getting him in Mission Impossible 6, which feels like a, a, a <laughs> decent... It feels like a decent... Uh, uh, concession uh, prize. Well, remember, Tom Cruise was originally supposed to play Napoleon Solo, and then he dropped out, and that's how Henry Cavill got the gig. It's it's just wheels within wheels in uh, in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> well, actually, to tie it all together, but Mission Impossible is you know one of the things that's keeping Paramount going, even mm. after you know they've had a pretty disappointing couple of years. That's why Brad Gray ended up leaving his uh, chief creative officer. And, and that and it was also tying into the silence flaw. But everyone is now wanting this model. So there's really no room for not even necessarily that small um, indie market unless it's an Oscar piece. But even someone like Spielberg or Scorsese or you know the, the quote unquote auteurs who work within that, you know, twenty to ninety million dollar bracket. Yeah. Even they can't get the funding money in it anymore and you, have you have you seen those ones who have had trouble? I mean, even Spielberg with the BFG, which I really liked, but it didn't yeah. do anywhere near what it needed. Mm-hmm. You think maybe he's looking at Netflix and thinking, you know, why don't I go here with, um, you know, with my next movie, which is the uh, the one with Mark Rylance and Oscar Isaac? Oh, Certainly yeah, a yeah. viable model. Yeah, and I don't see why not. If they're going to put the money down, you know, take the money. <laughs> yeah, we seem to have entered an era where, and, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, talking about, big budget franchises in the wake of moonlight winning best picture where because those do seem to be the two kinds of movies that get made now you either get stuff that's huge hundreds of millions connected universe or stuff that is by hollywood standards micro budget which you know 1.5 million is nothing in hollywood terms to make a movie and and moonlight won best picture and and was a kind of a huge success within its very kind of limited uh, terms um, but yeah, you'd like the the sort of movies that people like David Lynch and John Waters used to make just pretty much don't exist anymore, and that's why John Waters has taken to being someone who writes kind of semi autobiographical novels and is a kind of a, a a guest on talk shows professionally, it seems. And David Lynch has gone to Showtime because they're the only people who can fund the kind of things that maybe uh, because uh, Showtime are the only people who seemingly were willing to give him the money to do what he wanted so much so that he even kind of threatened to quit and endangered the entire endeavor of Twin Peaks before it even started and they caved (laughs) that is it's just so fascinating to me that's when you even think about that these big names you have this idea of the the great auteur of Hollywood who is this sort of you know really dignified bearded white dude with a baseball cap who can get anything done (laughs) and we're finding that even the bearded dudes with the baseball caps can't do that anymore you know even Mm. the most famous of those cannot get the money or the clout uh to make those kind of passion projects which aren't even necessarily passion projects they're just movies that have a very specific audience and the budget to match and need support outside of maybe this will win an oscar because i think that gap between those two things has become so large now that the the middle ground is completely open for someone to take but i don't think you know this is a problem with hollywood as well progress is maddeningly incremental it will happen five years after it should have happened although maybe now in this new market it will happen a little quicker you know a24 might start doing slightly bigger budget movies and putting them out there you know they've now got the clout thanks to moonlight and if you look at their lineup for this year they've certainly got some 
big potential titles or same for Annapurna who's mm. essentially writing blank checks for her favourite people she's now doing both the new Catherine Bigelow movie and the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie and she's mm. also doing Alexander Payne and Wes Anderson you know these are people who are basically you know asking for their you know their pocket money and they're getting it so yeah, if you're going to be an eccentric also... billionaire I'd rather you be you know <laughs> Megan Ellison than Donald Trump <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, God, I'd hate to think of the movies that Donald Trump would fund. <laughs> the biggest Should movies, lo- the hugest movies, just the greatest. You won't believe them. Big, bigly box office. Um, <laughs> just nothing but Peter Berg movies, probably. Um, oh, don't give it, Mark Wahlberg ideas. <laughs> uh, but it, also in terms of, you know, you, you're saying about how there is that market for the mid-budget movie and Amazon are following kind of a traditional root in that regard in that they like you say they they partner with other companies they put the movies out there slowly and then the kind of the back end of it is that they get the exclusive rights to stream the movie on their site there's also you also it's also kind of maddening to me that more big studios aren't looking at what Bloomhouse are doing because like if you want to look at a studio that is making money hand over fist in Hollywood right now uh in the wake of Get Out and Split Bloomhouse is like doing or Blumhouse is doing incredibly well you know they they invest tiny amounts of money in in genre movies and in directors who have an interesting point of view and vision and also in complete schlock but you know schlock that's cheap and that will probably make all its money back in its first you know screening basically uh on the first first night that it's available uh and they are making kind of huge profits and it's strange that more studios aren't looking at that and saying hey why don't we take 50 million dollars out of our budget and it invested in 10 very small budget horror movies and maybe they will in a, in a couple of years time once they realize that there are no more there are no more franchises to make and that they've strip mined everything but it, it does seem maddening that no one is looking around and saying hey there's there's fertile ground here for uh people to make interesting low budget movies uh and that we can you know make art probably more money than we will on the next dc or marvel movie and also to embrace genre, I feel like we have seen this mm. weird kind of, you know, geek culture now rules the earth. So all of the things that used to be really hard to make are now, you know, par for the course. But stuff that's a little more idiosyncratic or more rooted in the kind of schlockiness is harder to get made. And that's why I think mm. Bloomhouse are so revolutionary on that aspect. They're really proud of the trash. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Jason and- Bloom will go out for everything. Oh, God, yes. I mean, the fact that he got M. Night Shyamalan back making essentially the B-movies he should have been making all along, and I say that as mm-hmm. someone who loves his first four movies. Mm-hmm. But, yep. you know, that is a gamble that paid off huge. I mean, Split has made close to $250 million. So, you know, and now they're going to get, you know, vague spoilers, but they're pretty much getting the rest of the Shyamalan-verse now because of that. It is yes. a- Staggeringly, you know, brilliant decision, and then look at what Get Out is doing—a hundred million dollars in America alone. Yeah, so offers five million. If, a five million budget is it? Uh, four point five, I think actually. Yeah, so but that's it's no- made. That's nothing. It's going to make about at least thirty times its budget, which is enough for Bloom Hells to make another thirty movies. <laughs> And that's fascinating that there are other studios looking at that and thinking there, there's something there. There is a hunger, not just for that kind of genre but for those kind of voices i mean jordan mm. peele now pretty much has carte blanche to do whatever the hell he wants and you know that yeah. marvel and dc are banging on his door mm. you know that dc are like hey you like the flash 
You want the flash? <laughs> Look over here, it's the flash. And he doesn't need to take it. And I mean, he, I believe he's already said that he's partnering with Bloomhouse for like four more movies that are essentially mm. social horrors. Yes. And he can yeah. do that and he's got the support to do that. It's no long. That's the problem as well is the model of not just distribu- uh, distribution, but of filmmaking and these creative types is, well, I'll make a $600,000 indie that'll get screened at Sundance and maybe I'll get to direct Jurassic World. Mm, there's this yeah. if i'm a, a straight white guy but you know <laughs> there's nothing else in the middle for anyone else who wants to work outside of that it's it's kind of depressing that we look at all of these incredible talents with their you know limitless potential and think now what marvel property are they going to get and mm. kudos to them if they want to do that you know i am excited by the works of some of these incredible directors at places like marvel you know even i'm going to see for uh for ragnarok because i like taika waititi yeah, so, and Black Panther is and I'm going to see Black Panther. lining up, yeah, lining up a hell of a lot of talent in that movie. Easy, but you know, there's no gap anymore for that, and I think that that's a great opportunity, not just for uh, Amazon and Netflix, but also for places like A24 and Annapurna. Um, and you mm. have seen an element of that with Netflix. Obviously, they got the Macon Blair movie. Mm-hmm. Um, which I believe actually they didn't buy at Sundance. They screened it there when they already had it. They were building the oh, buzz okay. for it. So they're, you know, once again, it's a traditional model, but, you know, Charlie McDowell with The Discovery is a good example of that as well. But you look at, you know, they've they've given Duncan Jones money, which is nice. Mm. You know, usually the the logic is, well, your last movie that cost a lot of money didn't do that great. So, you know, you've got to go to director jail for a couple of years. They immediately snapped him up. Mm. They've got Angelina Jolie making a new movie as well. It's very rare to see any director but particularly the woman director who has the ability to do whatever the fuck she wants she's the only mm. one pretty much and she's gone to netflix yeah and it's but there, there's the kind of the flip side to that and and you know for the make on blair movie is that it went to sundance it won i think the audience award or it won one of the top awards and there was a lot of buzz coming out of it but then when it debuted on Netflix, and, and this is partly because I think reviews weren't that kind to it. People were, were you know, they're very excited because of Macon Blair's connection to Jeremy Solnier. Uh, when when that movie debuted, there wasn't a huge amount of hype to it, and it feels, even though it's it's kind of an interesting movie that a lot of people were excited about, it feels that uh, it debuted on Netflix and now it's done. And there doesn't seem to be, without the traditional platform release model that Amazon have kind of very shrewdly uh, followed, it does feel like the simultaneous release that works so well for television uh, in some way seems to, uh, and, you know, this may be just my perception and anecdotally of, of reading people's reviews and stuff on Twitter, uh, it does seem to in some way devalue it or that it seems like there is some sort of stigma applied to it. Yeah, I think that it ends up feeling oddly anticlimactic, which is a problem. Mm. I mean, the thing as well with I Don't Feel at Home in This World anymore it was it won this award, it got all this great buzz out of Sundance, and then they didn't really do anything with it. They put it on the site, mm. and from what I understand, they didn't even do it as like the spotlight on your homepage. You, know, you had to no, go look for it. that movie, which mm. if you are, you know, you know, Joe and Sheila just browsing through <laughs> Netflix for chill, and, you know, you're not actively going to seek that movie out, even if it's something mm. that you may like. If it's not there and you don't know about it, it's just going to languish there, and that's problem and they're, you know they're not doing that with their tv shows they really are spotlighting them but they, you know they've also you know the whole problem of hashtag peak tv is a big thing that netflix contributed to they may end up contributing to peak movie mm. because they're just pushing the stuff out there um whereas at least amazon have a very you know it's an old school method which is do the festival circuit build the hype up and then you know just treat it like a movie not necessarily a tool of your platform but 
it has worked so successfully for them that there's no way Netflix aren't going to try and replicate it on some level. Like, they're not just going to stick the Irishman on Netflix. Mm. That is going to get at least a month, a month and a half of an incredible push out across New York and LA and then the country. Mm. They have to do yeah. it. Yeah, they, they can't. I think their experience with Beasts of No Nation, which debuted, and also the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sequel they put out that literally no one talks about and no oh, one yeah, seems to have remembered. Um, I think what they, they, they must have learned is that the idea of day and date releasing maybe works for doing stuff with um, of, on demand because at least you're making money somewhere from it. But with Netflix, which has a much broader audience, you are just going to cannibalize the people who are interested in it because so many people are going to say, well, I could go and see this in a cinema, but I could also just watch it on my phone <laughs> or I can watch it uh, watch it at home, just kind of not having to deal with the, the, the pressures of going to a second location and, and having to deal with audiences for theatres. Uh, and if they did that for for The Irishman, whilst I'm sure a lot of people would go to see a new Scorsese movie in the theatres, Silence demonstrated that that's not a kind of a guarantee. It really is something that you need to put a lot of effort into promoting and to making sure that people are excited by. And uh, th- that clearly, uh, Carrie Fukunaga isn't the sort of person outside of film Twitter where he's, he's really beloved, um, isn't the sort of person who could do that. But Scorsese is still a huge enough name that they could really get a lot of money and attention if they did follow a traditional release method. So if they scaled back their revolutionary ambitions yeah definitely i mean they need to basically make people less lazy that's the problem is Mm -hmm. it's really easy to get sucked into netflix and just lie there and flick for two hours trying to find something to watch you want it no this no i don't want that and that you know that there's a great comfort to that but also you know the problem that i don't want to be the old man yells at cloud situation here (laughs) but there is going to be a you know a facet of that audience is like well i could go to the cinema to see this you know netflix movie of scorsese's but i could just get it on my phone in a month's time Mm. and the idea of watching it on your phone just kind of depresses me but it's going to happen aren't they already talking about cutting certain movies to be more watchable on mobile devices yeah i'm sure it's one of those programs there's always a program that they're floating which will probably get like a what was it called flickster or something where they had some or they had uh they had some kind of program where they were going to do just the dvd service and it was a disaster they were going to spin it off and everyone said no this is a terrible idea but they always kind of float ideas and then drop them if they get shouted down if, if nothing they are very responsive to kind of public outcry which is nice um but yeah like yeah that they it, it seems like the sort of thing where they're putting so much money into it they would try you would hope that they would really push it not just for awards contention but to say to people hey i know this is going to have netflix show up at the beginning of it but you really need to see this in the biggest screen possible because it's a scorsese movie and that's how his movies ideally you know are meant to be seen yeah i think that's one of the reasons that they ended up pursuing a lot of indie movies in the first place is because mm. they didn't necessarily need to be inherently cinematic you know, whatever your yeah, definition no of to... cinematic is yeah, no one needs to go out and watch the fundamentals of caring on on a big screen. That's the sort of thing that you would put on hungover and say, <laughs> "Oh, this still isn't very good." Yeah, pretty <laughs> but, much. Um, but yeah, that, that that you can see why they would kind of pursue that way because also they're driven so much by analytics, or at least they were in their early days. Maybe like I'm not sure what analytics kind of led them to the Irishman. I think that that does feel like they are. Instead of looking at, okay, what kind of programs do people like to watch? Oh, they like to watch 
the West Wing and they also like dark dramas, let's make House of Cards. That does seem to be one where they're trying to break away from it and saying, okay, what would get us the most attention imaginable? What would get us potentially our first Best Picture uh, nomination? Uh, What would allow us to break out of the ghetto of nominations for documentary and documentary short, which is really the only areas that they so far have made much kind of leeway in. Um, And I also think that going away from the in cinemas and on Netflix at the same time model might kind of break through the industry's skepticism about them because I think that that to me is the reason why Amazon were so accepted this year to the extent that they won three Oscars two for Manchester by the Sea and one for The Salesman because they kind of played the game they said you know we are we're a streaming service but we're also going to put this into theatres for a little period of time and people can see it in, in, in a proper way. Whereas the Netflix model to date does seem to be prejudiced against in Hollywood because as for, they probably see it as, uh, you know, I uh, correctly, I would say, as a threat to the way that they've done business for 100 years. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, I think we'll see them certainly embrace the festival circuit more. Mm. Uh, I'm interested to see if they're going to make a foothold at Cannes this year, not just in terms of screening something, but buying up stuff. I mean, that was one of the big messages that came out of Sundance this year, was that Netflix and Amazon were putting the money down. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, you had uh, Mudbound going to Netflix, but you had The Big Sick going to Mm -hmm. Amazon for $12 million, which is, you know, for a a romantic comedy starring Camille Nanjiani and... uh, 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 Zoe Kazan is, is a lot mm. of money even with Judd Apatow's name attached to it as a producer. Yeah and uh, Michael Showalter's not a big kind of marquee name. I mean he is for certain people but not in terms of his directorial work. Yeah but I think that's also a sign that there's um, they are aware of audiences that may have previously been overlooked mm-hmm. so this is one of the things that I think Bloomhouse were really good at with Get Out like they clearly understood you know uh, the African American audience in America are going to, you know, they go to the cinema in droves. Mm. Now, the majority of cinema goers in America, in North America, I should say, are not white. The majority of them are also women. And that's Mm. almost completely overlooked because the target demographic in their head is still, you know, a sullen white guy aged between 18 and 49 who likes to play Call of Duty and likes boobs. (laughs) And no matter how unreliable that model has been, you know, it can be proven wrong time and time again, and they'll still go back to it. Whereas, you know, a bunch of movies starring women do really well with women audiences. Oh, it's just a fluke. Mm. It's, you know, Get Out is not a fluke. Yeah. And I think something like The Big Sick, you know, how often do you see interracial romantic comedies in, you know, from any nation and any, you know, distributed to a wide audience? You really don't. And as someone who does read romance novels, who knows that it's a billion dollar a year industry, you know, you could do well with this, and clearly Amazon understand that. And I think you see that with other stuff like, um, you know, stuff that they've got coming out this year. Uh, they've got the remake of Suspiria. Mm, yes. Which, you know, and, and done by a legit director, you know. This is not a schlocky remake. They have given it to a guy who, you know, people like. It's, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce his name. It's Luca Guadagnino. That, yes. that, that. The yeah. director of um, Call Me By Your Name, which is coming out this year. God, he's busy. He's he's really racking up his, his hits, isn't he? He also did uh, A Bigger Splash last year, the source of the greatest dance video since uh, Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina. <laughs> it was so wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see it as well. They've also bought Leos Carrick's new movie. 
Yes, which also appears to be falling apart at the seams based on... Yeah. <laughs> which uh, is a shame. But if, if they can get that happening, that's another one which seems to be kind of a, a sop to the film Twitter crowd. It's like, not that many people are going to be excited about the idea of a new Leos Carrick's movie, but the people who are are going to be hugely excited. Also, I guess Sparks fans, because they wrote all the music and I think wrote the script. So it's... Um, an insane, an insane pro- proposition, but also sounds really exciting. Um, but but yeah, like the the big sick as well. Like if we're talking about underserved genres in general, like the romantic comedy is almost completely dead at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Todd Todd Vanderwerf wrote a very good article for Vox about this, kind of laying out why the reasons why it died in kind of the mid two thousands, which is essentially that it became for whatever reason a disreputable genre that young actresses for some reason didn't want to be involved with and kind of the established actors you know in the way that hollywood does you know they turned 35 and then they stopped being cast as romantic leads that so that there is i think there's clearly a market for it you know there are plenty of people out there who love romantic comedies and would like to go and see a good new romantic comedy but they're not being made so in the same way that blue mouse are targeting horror and hopefully will kind of spur more and thrillers and just genre movies in general maybe amazon with the big sick will be able to target will you know kind of provide the push to other studios to invest but at the same time it's very hard to unlearn habits in hollywood and the habit they've all fallen into is like like you say appeal to the young male demographic who like seemingly only have to go after not particularly uh, sophisticated dumb action movies uh which you know have their place but they shouldn't be the only part of the cinematic diet and that's what uh what hollywood seems to have gone all in on in the last 10 years or so and they've gone all in on it in a way that is that clearly cannot be sustainable i mean it's mm. not just that the gap between the indie market and the blockbuster market has gotten wider it's that the co- the, the average cost of those blockbusters now are just ridiculous yes. i mean it's getting to you know it, Batman v Superman it is now considered a flop because it didn't make a billion dollars. That's where we're at. You have to make a billion to break even, mm. which is ridiculous. But they're going to keep pumping money into that model because you know they've they've built so much of their foundations on this you know this quicksand that they have to. They mm. just have to keep building. They're really not going to stop and kind of go back to the beginning, which is a shame because it's a really easy system to get sucked into, and it's I think it leaves audiences the worse off. Absolutely. But I will say, I think that this will be an interesting moment for Netflix as well. Uh, and I wrote about this in my piece is if they really do want to establish themselves as that kind of big traditional studio, the chances are they are at some point going to invest in that kind of franchise model. But the mm. question is, where are they going to go? Are they going to, you know, buy up some interesting properties? Are they going to go for some, you know, superhero comics or something that haven't been Marvel or DC? Are they going to maybe buy up a franchise that isn't doing very well right now that a studio wants to take off their hands? So, you know, and because they have the potential to reach this quite international audience, they can really appeal to a fascinating number of demographics. The big thing with the model right now in Hollywood for blockbusters is so much of it is focused on will this appeal to the Chinese box office? Because that's Mm. where the money is right now. So you see things like you know, Doctor Strange refusing to admit that Tibet exists, yeah. or um, the new Transformers film, or well, the last one, the fourth one, I think we're on, the one with Marky Mark, mm-hmm. is yeah. full of weird Chinese product placement in the middle of Texas. 
So, you know, that's the audience now. And that's also about as sustainable a model as what Netflix are doing right now, because that box office, you know, is about $7 billion a year, but it's also completely flatlined because Chinese audiences now just want to watch their own movies. You know, why would they want to watch Matt Damon in The Great Wall when they can go watch Stephen Chow? Yeah, and and also because China in general are very... They they have um, blackout periods where they don't allow foreign movies to be screened they will have like a three-month period where they can only show homegrown entertainments and that the number of film American films they show there are limited anyway. So unless you can make some sort of co-production deal with a Chinese studio, as, as happened with The Great Wall, then, you know, your your chances of being screened in China are severely limited unless you're going to kind of meet a lot of kind of ideological or commercial tests that are put in place to say is this something that the government will allow to be screened to the the, the general populace which has to be uh, frustrating for studios that make all those concessions and then the movies still don't get shown anyway and it's fascinating how quick so many of them are now to make those concessions i mean remember you know, 15 years ago disney were completely banned from china because they distributed kundun which was scorsese's movie about the dalai lama mm. You know, and they, the reason that they were unbanned was basically they had to go and grovel to the Chinese censors and say, look, we've got Mulan now. We think you guys would really like that. <laughs> we're really sorry that we acknowledge that the Dalai Lama is a real person. And now they've got, you know, Shanghai Disneyland, which cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. And apparently China don't even like it. So it's fascinating that they have completely gone all in on this, even though we have no idea how sustainable it is. Because it's only since 2011, 2012, it's really become... A major player and all the concessions that they're going to make will that pay off in the long term so you know, there's still so many gaps in the market that they haven't touched but they're going all in on this one and that is you know i i, I don't know how long that's going to work for because you know the great wall didn't just flop in north america it flopped in china mm. and you also have the problem that the chi- the the ambitions of the Chinese film industry is to go the opposite way, which is they want to make movies that are really big hits outside of China, and so at a certain point, well, you know when China have developed pro- uh, films that can go to a global audience and they they kind of tap into whatever the Hollywood formula is, and if they become the dominant market, then there's no in- they'll have no interest in showing American movies because it will be direct competition for them, and then suddenly that revenue stream either goes away completely or trickles down to more or less nothing and they don't even necessarily need to appeal to an international audience Mm. i mean look at the mermaid which was stephen chow's movie which made an absolute fortune and it barely screened outside of china was easily one of the highest grossing yeah it was about half a billion dollars it made yeah it was in the top 10 of the year i think right up until like the last couple of months once rogue rogue one came in and maybe knocked it out but it was yeah, it was this for for much of last year. It was one of the biggest films of the year, and everyone was like, "What is this?" <laughs> but it didn't need to, you know, it didn't need to play outside of America because, like you say, it made all its money at home. And I think that's also a huge missed opportunity for you know, Sony are one of the few studios who really have a distribution option for international movies. Mm. But I don't think that they're doing it very well. I mean, Sony have a lot of problems on their plate right now mm. that they they ha- they cannot deal with. They're completely falling apart at the seams on that front. But, you know, they did screen The Mermaid and it did well for like the four screenings that they did in, I think, New York and LA. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But they had absolutely no interest in trying to find a wider audience or even get it onto a streaming platform. And that's the kind of film, you know, 
there is a huge market of um, American viewers and European viewers who do know who Stephen Chow is and mm. like his films and would like to have an option to see this because it didn't get. I mean, it did get a screening in the UK, but I think it was like one in Glasgow, and I you know couldn't go and see that, and I would love to have seen the Mermaid. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like there were there were lots of articles about it at the time, which said that it screened for a few screenings in America, but hardly any critics got to see it. And they were like, this is a new film by a major international filmmaker, and none of us have been able to see it because hardly anyone in this country is ever going to see it. I only saw it on a plane. You know, I, <laughs> I saw it on a plane back to England to, uh, for, for a few weeks. And I was like, oh, great, I can finally see this movie that did huge business. And I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I was thinking I would have really liked to have had a chance to see this in a big screen, even if it's just, you know, in an art house cinema somewhere for a, that would only play for a week. You know, it probably wasn't best served by being in the back of someone else's chair. Yeah, it's such a missed opportunity. And I think that there's also this, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that Hollywood works on. You know, hmm. women will only, you know, women will watch movies about anyone, but men will only watch movies about men. Or... Yeah. Um, you know, same in terms of race. And I think a lot of that plays with the international market, which is Asian audiences will watch movies about white people as long as there's like a token Asian person in the background. Mm. But uh, American audiences will not watch a movie with a majority Asian cast unless there's, you know, like a small white person in the background. Mm-hmm. And once yeah. again, that's also a huge missed opportunity. And you've seen the way that people are reacting. Look at the, you know, Ghost in the Shell is going to lose so much money. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, and they had a great opportunity there to put, you know, Rinko Kikuchi or any, you know, great Japanese actress in that lead role. And you could have appealed to a much wider audience. But the assumption is, you know, still of this very odd A-list model, which we don't really have anymore. You know, stars don't make movies anymore. It's about the title mm-hmm. of the movie. It's about the franchise. If yeah. you look at, I mean, Sony understood that the hard way with Passengers. Um, yeah, that was ugly for everyone involved. So I'm I'm curious to see how places like Amazon and Netflix and such will respond to that because clearly name means something to them on some level, but it's about who's behind the camera. Mm. You know, I mean, Netflix have Bright coming out, which is David Ayer's movie, which is basically End of Watch with Orcs, starring yeah. Will Smith and written by Max fucking Landis. Um, is there excitement for that? Just it's palpable. You can't move without people talking <laughs> about how much they're looking forward to seeing Bright. Oh god! They paid it looks... three million dollars for that script. Uh, god, yeah, it's it, they're enablers, Hollywood. They're enabling Max Landau, like Max Landis. Uh, <laughs> they're enabling they're... Will Smith as well. Is there a bigger mm. star in Hollywood with worse taste in scripts? Yeah, certainly of late, he's not. He's not having the best look. To to think that the best thing he's been involved with in recent years is what a Winter's Tale. That seems like it was probably the, the highlight I mean, of his recent. Best output. is a really flexible term, there, isn't it? Oh yeah, this this the most relative of, of relative terms. I had the best experience. That film came on TV one time, and I remember hearing all the reviews. I've had to sit down and watch it, and my mum came into the, the the room, and we just sort of watched it in rapture. Like, what is this? Why is the horse flying? Why is Russell Crowe <laughs> growling? Why is Will Smith here? It was the best. Yeah, it was, I, it was I, like the first time I saw the room. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, the first time I heard of it, I think, was when they did it on How Did This Get Made with Andy Daly. Oh, it's a uh, brilliant episode. <laughs> it it was fantastic, but I was listening to it and I was thinking, this, I have to see this because nothing they're saying makes any sense. This is like the ramblings of a madman. And then I watched it and I listened back to the episode and I thought, still doesn't make much more sense. <laughs> I, have <laughs> like, the, I, I have the I book have, and it is 750 pages long. 
And I can tell. It doesn't make any more sense. <laughs> you know, what, if you could use one sentence, this offer will use ten. Wow. It's completely bonkers. I mean, Akiva Goldsman, what did you expect? But that's another <laughs> thing I'm interested to see if Netflix and Amazon and this new model get on board is we really don't get crazy man vanity projects anymore. And I think we're, yeah. we're poorer for it. Hmm. I think we need more of those. And I would like to see if anyone kind of invests in that. I want proper bonkers films. And I think that we now have this market that's been completely homogenized to reach those wide markets. And we, we kind of get a lot less interesting for it. Yeah, I want to see something that takes down a studio again. It's been a while since something has really bankrupted <laughs> bankrupted you know, it. Sony's looking on shaky ground right now. <laughs> mm, yeah, they just need to really invest in... I, I was going to. I was trying to think of any kind of long gestating what well, that that like Francis Ford Coppola science fiction movie that he tried to make for like twenty years, the one that was going to be set in like an entirely fictionalized New York set in fifty years in the future. Maybe that'll do it. Oh yeah, pre- I remember that. All the unmade movies are now being made. It seems the the you know if the man who killed Don Quixote can get made, then absolutely anyone can make anything. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping. Um... Amazon are doing Lynn Ramsey's new movie. I'm hoping that mm. this will lead to them investing in her Moby Dick in Space movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that also at one point going to be done by Timur Bekmembetov? Or he was going was to do it? a... Or maybe, oh. he, maybe he had... He was definitely working on a Moby Dick script. Maybe it was not the same one. But yeah, it was a... It was going to be a Timur Bekmembetov version of Moby Dick. It sounded crazy. Uh, and sadly, it didn't happen because none of his films have ever made money except for Wanted. But but yeah, that was one that I really was hoping for. But I think now almost feels like a vestige of another age because it was at a time when, like you say, studios hadn't quite figured out that there was money in comic book movies. So they were willing to kind of take this lunatic Russian director and say, hey, go make a a modernised version of an American classic that will appeal to kind of young film film goers. Maybe that will be what takes Netflix down. They'll finally have to admit mm. they don't have as much money as they think they do, and it will be because they gave it all to Francis Ford Coppola for this seven-hour epic of a fictional city or whatever. Yeah, once, yeah. basically what we're saying is we need to see Netflix's tax returns. Like that's, <laughs> that's what we're waiting for. I mean, I, that's what I, I am genuinely curious about their you know what their financial situation is i imagine it's at least decent Mm. but they're giving the impression of basically being like howard hughes right now yes definitely you know they're going to bring out their own spruce goose soon they're going to go (laughs) full jars and pee everything is just going to go completely bonkers and you know jeff bezos is going to stand on the sidelines just sort of rubbing his palms and laughing yeah (laughs) i think at least if nothing else what amazon are doing right now is that you know tried and tested sustainable method but if they want to i think they are you know also you know because they already had the money there and you're seeing the way they're triumphing over a lot of the old school um distributors and studios and stuff i mean look at you know look at the weinstein company right now Mm. and compare them to what e24 and what amazon are doing Weinstein, Weinstein used to be the full you know terrifying zeitgeist of the indie market and now he feels like such a relic in a market yeah. that you know, even only five or six years ago, he was doing incredibly well in. Yeah, there was there was a period. I mean, he kind of had it this year with Lion, but there was definitely a period where it seemed like, through sheer force of will, he could get a couple of Best Picture nominations, and their their 
that was their thing you know they would get a movie nominated for best picture and that's where they would make their money it wasn't something they didn't invest in kind of blockbusters all that much uh, they would end up with things like like pulp fiction became an accidental blockbuster because it made more money than anyone expected it could uh but like every since the kind of the turn of the the millennium or the turn of the decade they've just been in tatters and it's been interesting to see people like a24 and annapurna kind of step up and say okay we can try and take the take what the weinsteins uh crown well that's what's also um you know they're not just offering a, an alternative they're offering a better creative option you know harvey weinstein's nickname is harvey scissorhands because he used to have mm-hmm. this habit of basically you know it's my way or the highway you cut this movie how i tell you or i'm just gonna ditch it look what he did to both bong joon ho and james gray with the snowpiercer and the immigrant neither and, of them wanted to you know cut the movie the way that he wanted them to and he mm. basically ditched them like a really angry bitter ex-boyfriend you know, neither of those films have received a uk release outside of the festival market for snowpiercer neither of them are on netflix or anything like that he's basically completely stonewalled them and both of those films you know had the potential to be awards players like if the immigrant had gotten a push especially for Marianne Cotillard and for those actors, it could have done a good job. And you could see, I believe Marianne Cotillard got the New York Film Critics Best Actress Award that year for mm-hmm. that and um, the other film that she did. Was it Two Days, One Night? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like her joint award and then you could almost hear the panic of Weinstein going, oh shit, I could have done something there. And he kind mm-hmm. of went into overdrive a little there, but by then it was easily too late because he just screwed it over so much but now you know if your option is go with harvey weinstein where there's no guarantee your film is even going to get released (laughs) right now or go with a24 who are wildly supportive they are incredibly buzzy right now and they've clearly got a model in place that has done very well for almost all of their indie movies right now especially over the past couple of years it's it's you know there's no contest yeah 2013 he must have been especially dyspeptic because obviously he had he had those two movies, but he also had the Grandmaster, the Wong Kar Wai movie, which I still don't think has been seen in its unedited, unkind of boulderized version uh, outside of China, unless you do what I did, which is like look online to try and buy a copy of the, the Blu-ray, which allowed you to finally watch it. But that was another one where he bought up a movie by an incredibly acclaimed filmmaker, one that had already been a huge hit in China, and then like said okay i'm going to cut this and i'm going to give it kind of a token release and then nothing's going to happen with it uh and it's crazy so yeah so to have a version of the weinstein company that doesn't come with all of that baggage is probably very very appealing and I, and i think with netflix as well you know getting scorsese on board that's going to mean a lot to a lot of young filmmakers who maybe haven't considered netflix before as an outlet or or you know even established filmmakers they'll look at it and say oh this is something we can do now because they've got scorsese maybe they'll you know we probably can't command 150 million dollars but we if we can get 10 15 20 million dollars from them to do what what we want then that's kind of a viable alternative for us than trying to deal with studios that maybe aren't that three with control or money yeah, definitely. And if Netflix do a really good job with Mudbound in terms of their awards campaign, it's also another viable model for the indie market in a way that mm. places like the Weinstein Company will not accommodate them. I mean, the Weinstein Company's model for getting Oscars is completely genius. I mean, they totally reinvented the way that people campaign for Oscars now. Mm. You know, this proper, you know, really hard-headed kind of relentless model that also verged on bullying, but it worked. 
mean, yeah. you know, he was not above throwing a few dirty rumors out there. And even as or playing on people's, you know, sort of preconceptions and their, you know, the, the good bleeding heart Hollywood liberal model. I mean, even look at um, a couple of years ago with the imitation game, which won for screenplay, which it totally shouldn't have done. But yeah, remember the campaign was, for yeah. that, which was honour the man, honour the film. He was completely okay with tying the victory of this, frankly, mediocre movie that kind of screws over Alan Turing's legacy to Alan Turing himself. It was such a dirty, nasty tactic, and it worked. But we didn't even see him trying that over the past couple of years. He's gotten so oddly defeatist. Like, he didn't even try to turn the Carol campaign into, you know, a great celebration of the passing of, um, you know, equal marriage in America. He totally mm. should have, you know, old Harvey would have done that, no problem. And he didn't even try. Or even, you know, The Hateful Eight, he was writing off as a flop like two weeks after it came out. It's like he's just sort of gotten weirdly bored with the process. And now that kind of culminated in last year's films where he had like an interesting slew of films. He had Sing Street, he had mm. Lion, he had The Founder, he had Gold. Like he had this potential there and he didn't even try with a lot of it. Look at the poor founder, which should have done way better than it did. And he just moved the release date from December to August. And then like three weeks before it was supposed to open, he moved it back to December. And no one mm. got a chance to see it. Yeah. And coming off of like Michael Keaton getting the most attention he's had in years for his performance in Birdman. You know, say, say what you like about Birdman. It's not a film that I care for particularly, but like oh, he no. was... <laughs> He was he was great in it, and he is someone who I think you think okay he's not going to get it for this film, and he was good in Spotlight as well. So you think okay, the founder seems like a perfect vehicle for him to finally get an Oscar, uh, and yeah, it came and went. Absolutely, no one really seemed to have uh, paid any, paid any attention to it. I barely saw any ads for it, even when it did come out, uh, and yeah, it just seemed like one of those ones that should have been perfect for award season, and it just just didn't do anything it was weirdly like an even less successful version of steve jobs in that regard Oof, ouch that's scott ridden's <laughs> problem that's not his uh but you know it's also completely bit him in the arse because uh, the yeah, he's now being sued by film nation over the release of gold and mm. you know basically they're arguing that it was pushed out too quickly and after a more favorable movie in his eyes and it really didn't get the chance it needed you know, it doesn't matter if the film is good or not. It never mattered to Weinstein if the film was good or not. But this was mm. it was pretty much dumped without him even having the the, the anger over not getting a cut of it. Mm. I, it like, like, what, you know, Tulip Fever, is it going to come out? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that movie exists anymore. I, I, I think that's also a tax scam. Poor Zach Galifianakis in his giant rough. <laughs> yeah, he's not having great luck with movies coming out. Because there was also that Masterminds one, the movie from the napoleon dynamite team that oh yeah was uh scheduled for release like pretty much every summer for about three years and then it suddenly came out to absolutely no fanfare he is uh he's an unlucky man in many ways although baskets is great so you know he's still getting his work out there somehow i think that's you know you're going to see a lot of that people who used to be big in film or at least have their name above the title in a way that mattered will just go to television you're even seeing mm. that with creatives you know amy sherman paladino it's probably never going to try and go back to film in the times that she has. Or even someone like David Russell has now been snatched up by Amazon for TV. Because mm. there's a guy that needed the chance. You know, there's a guy that needs a break. Yeah. Or Woody yeah, Allen. The... You know, the, the, the real strugglers <laughs> of that industry. Yeah, the, there's definitely a sense that what we're seeing now with the move to streaming is exact is a kind of an accelerated and even more high-profile example of what we saw 
end kind of the, the the goal like five or six years ago when we started really talking about the golden age of television it was like all of these actors and writers and producers and directors who otherwise would have worked in film in some capacity looking at what tv was doing and saying no i want to be going there because what hollywood is interested in doing i'm not interested in doing and what i'm interested in doing hollywood is not interested in doing so i'm going to go make a show for amc or whatever and that is you know i think streaming services at least now before it all collapses <laughs> in a couple of years time when it's, everyone realized that netflix and Am- netflix has no money um amazon will probably still be fine just because again we have the receipts essentially to say okay this is how much money their movies are making because they get box office releases uh, and they have a kind of a global corporation behind it that isn't just about making movies um like now this kind of period where netflix and amazon don't seem I mean, they're picky in that they're going after projects that they think are going to be interesting, but they're not necessarily restricted by the co- the concept of risk. They are willing to just kind of throw money at stuff that everyone else is saying, oh, no, you can't make that. Uh, and in the hope that it ends up being a success. And they're throwing money at not, you know, it's film, it's TV, it's documentary, it's documentary short, it's animated, you know, it's animation mm. and stuff like that. Uh, and in a way that the, the traditional model didn't really accommodate for. I mean, look what happened when the Weinstein Company did try to go into television. We got Marco Polo, mm-hmm. which is their show, guys. Remember that? Um, yeah. He's also did the US distribution for the War and Peace show that BBC did. But, you know, that's not a model that he's even, you know, the great Harvey Weinstein has been able to replicate. Mm. And I think that he's going to end up, you know, downsizing while everyone else is growing just because he probably can't afford to do anything else. So I, this is one of the reasons that the 2017 Oscar race is going to be so interesting, or 2018, I should say. And I know it's mm. way too early to talk about it, but they're already putting it into motion. Yeah. You know, Amazon have got a Lynn Ramsey movie and a Todd Haynes movie ready and rearing to go. And I think they'll probably start at Cannes because those two are both big Cannes favourites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Annapurna have the auteur cycle completely covered because it's Alexander Payne, Catherine Bigelow and Paul Thomas Anderson. A24 have Yorgos Lanthimos and Andrew Haig, among others. They have a huge slew, and Weinstein Company have three or four, maybe? Mm, I'm going to say yeah. four, assuming Tulip Fever happens. But <laughs> at this moment in time, I think the man who killed Don Quixote has got a better chance of coming out than Tulip Fever. Yeah, it definitely feels like last year was a breakthrough year for streaming in a major way, and this year feels like it's going to be even bigger in terms of the movies that are coming out, but also maybe the sense of urgency that all the other studios have in to try and take on these like new young challenges in the same way that, you know, the film has always, you know, if you're looking at the 1950s with, with film going into kind of widescreen to take on television, studios are probably going to be looking very nervously at the Oscars this year to see if, you know, half the slate comes from a streaming service would be a real shock to the system that uh you know may maybe just kind of makes them all collapse into a puddle of tears or maybe <laughs> spurs them on to to greater work as always on the shot reverse shot we end with srs recommends where we recommend something that we're we've seen recently or that we think people should check out kaylee what have you uh, got to recommend for our listeners this week so i went to see beauty and the beast today so i'm going to mm-hmm. recommend l <laughs> <laughs> okay uh Honestly, Elle is a film that is completely sure of what it is, but I have absolutely no idea what that thing is, but I'm hmm. completely fascinated by it. You've, if you've listened to this, you probably know what Elle is. It's Paul Verhoeven and Isabel Huppert, and it's this strange 
social satire, rape, revenge, comedy, drama, thriller. Mm-hmm. To to put it, you know, as simple terms as I can, and it's very much Paul Verhoeven having his prestige drama cake and just slathering it in trash <laughs> and eating it. And it has this incredibly strange mundane tone where everything is filmed and covered in the same way where it's really brutal beating and rape or an awkward dinner party. <laughs> so I, it's, I, I think there are going to be a lot of people who watch that film who are just baffled by it and angered by it and i completely understand that i think the anger would be justified but i just find myself oddly enraptured by it particularly isabel huper i completely understand why film twitter is just obsessed with her mm-hmm. you know my my knowledge of her films is, is pretty limited but it's one of those cases of every time every now and then you'll hear the phrase oh no one else could have done it but i genuinely don't think anyone else could have done what she does it is this you know really funny cold performance that's strangely likable and rooted in a very kind of mundane sociopath nature. Mm-hmm. So I, I I do wish that she had won. I think she should have won Best Actress. Although I was rooting for Natalie Portman in mm. Jackie, which is much better than you all think it is, guys. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, right? Uh, so it's easily, Elle's easily one of my, my favourite movies of the year. I'm, I'm curious to see what others think of it and how how Paul Verhoeven tries to up this. I know he's been trying to get a movie about Jesus made for a long time now. So, you know, that, that hey, will if be we're getting what... Mary Magdalene, why not that? <laughs> yeah. I think that will be what takes down Netflix. <laughs> They'll sign on to that. Come on, and... Netflix, do it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about seeing Gail. I still haven't had a chance to watch it, but that's one I've been fascinated with for a while. I'm going to recommend uh, a movie that uh, I watched, rewatched recently because uh, of, of the success of Moonlight at the Oscars. This is the first episode that we've recorded of the show since the Oscars happened and that kind of whole thing, which was incredible and just the craziest <laughs> thing I've ever seen and was, was wonderful. But I went back and rewatched Barry Jenkins' first movie, Medicine for Melancholy, which he made in 2008, starring Wyatt Cenac and Tracy Heggins. And it's a wonderful incredibly low budget movie like people talk about moonlight being low budget at 1.5 million he made medicine for melancholy for one percent of that for fifteen thousand dollars uh and it's a wonderful very scrappy as you would imagine um little kind of before sunsetty kind of movie about these two people who wake up having made over a party and having slept together although neither of them seem to remember it and a day they spend going around san francisco and talking to each other about their experiences of being black in an increasingly gentrified city and their different experiences as you know a black man and a black woman and and what that means for them existing in san francisco the history of san francisco itself and while it's not as elegant or subtle as and and not as beautiful as um as moonlight is because moonlight's obviously a more accomplished piece of work it is a, it's still just like a hugely promising debut. And you can see, not just because it's shot by the same cinematographer as Moonlight and it's edited by the same editor, but you can really see the germs of what Moonlight would become. The idea of this director taking his influences of world cinema, particularly European, it's a very French new wavy kind of movie, uh, and applying it to a distinctly American story, a distinctly African-American story, uh, and really kind of bringing his own point of view to it. And uh, I think it's, 
a really, really strong debut. And I think people who have discovered Barry Jenkins from Moonlight should go back and see that, if if only to kind of say, oh yeah, I can see where, where this guy was coming from. And you can become excited anew about the fact that he can finally make movies because he didn't make a movie between 2008 and 2016. And the level of sec- success between those two movies is uh, quite a thing to see. And again, makes this ho- the success of Moonlight even more of a wonderful story than it already was. Okay, uh, so thank you again, Kaylee, for coming on the show. Where can people find your work online? Uh, I'm a features writer at ScreenRant.com. You can find a lot of stuff I've written there. Don't read the comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write about books and pop culture and everything that it manifests in my ed at BiblioDays.com. Uh, and I'm co- the co-host of the Anglophies podcast, A-N-G-L-O-F-I-L-L-E-S. You can find that at anglophies.madeoffail.net. And if you're interested in vampires and feminism and Scottish and Kiwi accents, I also host the Bloodsucking Feminist podcast, which you can find at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. We talked about Dracula Untold last month. It was crap, but the podcast is good. Fantastic. Yeah, everyone should uh, should check that out. If there's any movie that deserves to be unpicked uh, in great detail, it's <laughs> Dracula Untold. Uh, a fascinating failure in an attempt to launch a cinematic universe. Okay, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the places that you can get podcasts as well as, and please write us a review that helps us get more listeners. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me.